And the epistle lesson for this Sunday is from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, for the sake of the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I am grateful to God, whom I worship with a clear conscience, as my ancestors did, when I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Recalling your tears, I long to see you, so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, lives in you. For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Do not be ashamed, then, of the testimony about our Lord, or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher, and for this reason I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know the one in whom I have put my trust, and I am sure that he is able to guard until that day what I have entrusted to him. Hold to the standard of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good treasure entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit living in us. You are aware that all who are in Asia have turned away from me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. When he arrived in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well how much service he rendered in Ephesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to be God. God. So before I jump into the lesson for the day, I'd like to give a little background on 2 Timothy. So a good fraction of the New Testament was allegedly written by Paul. Some letters are uncontested. Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, 1 Thessalonians, Philippians, and Philemon. There are a few others that may be authentic and certainly reflect Pauline theology, like Ephesians. And then there are the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. They're called pastoral because their contents refer to church organization and administration, and also because they're written to particular individuals who are known to be pastors. Many scholars reject all three as inauthentic, uh, and I would probably never preach from 1 Timothy or Titus. But 2 Timothy 
is the most likely to be authentic. And when I read today's passage, it spoke to me. It reflects a time in Paul's life that I think has a lesson for this church today. Also, incidentally, like Timothy, my grandmother's name was Lois. So, in this letter, Paul is nearing the end of his life. So let's think about what he's done. He started out a Pharisee, a deeply committed practitioner of Judaism. And to borrow a term from modern discourse, perhaps he was a fundamentalist. He was conservative, at least, in his beliefs and practices. And so he persecuted those who sought to change the focus from temple worship to following Jesus Christ. After a miraculous encounter on the road to Damascus, followed by days of blindness, and then a healing by one of Jesus' followers, Paul instead became the leading proponent of a new way of following God. As he wrote in today's passage, he was still committed to following the God of his ancestors. He just had a new understanding of what that meant. His ministry included several trips around the Mediterranean. He tried to convince Jews to follow Jesus, but eventually determined that his particular calling was to Gentiles. Paul never stopped being a Jew and never stopped believing that his fellow Jews should follow Jesus. But he focused his energy on spreading the good news of God's kingdom to those who had previously been locked out of it, but were now welcomed because of Jesus' saving death, life, death, and resurrection. New ideas always give rise to opposition, and Paul's ministry put him into direct conflict with both Jewish and Gentile leaders. He had a hard life. He was shipwrecked a few times, jailed several times, and flogged. He made good use of his time in prison. Many of his letters were written while he was imprisoned, including this farewell message to Timothy. But you can tell from the tone of his writing, in this letter at least, that he was feeling dejected. He had labored for years to bring Gentiles into God's kingdom, to spread a message of radical inclusion. Would it all be for naught? We read at the end of today's passage that all who are in Asia have turned away from him. That's a bit of hyperbole. But Paul was feeling like everyone had abandoned, was abandoning the message that he had taught. He considered himself a herald and an apostle and a teacher, and yet his pronouncement and teachings were being forgotten and ignored. He knew his life was coming to an end. He surely believed that he would soon be with his Lord, and yet he cared deeply for the people who were still living lives separated from God. Would his work die with him? Well, he could hold on to one hope, that Timothy and people like him would carry on the faith. As far as we know, Paul never married and had no biological children, but he did have spiritual children. He considered, to be, he considered Timothy to be like a son to him. The way Paul talks about him is intimate and physical, not just spiritual. It was incarnational. We modern Christians owe a lot of our belief system to Greek philosophy, including a dualistic belief 
that the spiritual and material worlds are totally separate and that the spiritual world is fundamentally superior. Paul didn't believe that and didn't teach that. The Jewish belief system that Paul's Christian theology grew out of is fundamentally incarnational. He didn't believe that the material world was something terrible to be escaped, but instead was something broken that needed to be healed. One day, this world will be fully transformed into God's kingdom. In the meantime, Paul taught us to work towards its transformation on a small scale. We cannot change everything for everyone, but we can change the world in a small way for one person at a time. Paul effected that transformation through deeply personal trans- uh, relationships. He relied on God, of course, and particularly on his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But he also needed people like Timothy and Onesiphorus to sustain him. In the same way, we all need to live incarnational lives. Too often, we separate the spiritual from the material worlds. We pray for mercy on Sunday and work for retributive justice on Monday. We pray for peace, but pursue war. We pray for an end to hunger, but perpetuate systems that keep people around the world in abject poverty. We need instead to live an embodied faith. Listen to a few podcasts that interviewed embodiment coaches. I found a good explanation of what that means from Michelle Newman on embodiedpresencenc.com. An embodiment coach is someone who supports you in creating ways of living more consciously and consistently in your body, embracing the present moment, setting intentions and goals from this embodied space, and listening to and following the wisdom your body has to share with you. This is basically a new term for an old concept. Monastic orders have long taught that we need to live in the present, not dwelling on past heartbreaks or worrying about the future, but simply being in the present moment, seeing God in all things, living in our bodies that are a part of Christ's body. And what do we do with those bodies? We embody the faith of our ancestors, the faith that we have been taught by Abraham and Moses and Amos and Jesus and Paul. Susan shared a quote a few weeks ago that really resonated with me because it was also on the wall of my grandma's house. Etienne de Grille, a Quaker missionary, once wrote, I shall pass this way but once. Any good that I can do or any kindness I can show to any human being, let me do it now. Let me not defer nor neglect it, for I shall not pass this way again. Live in the present moment. See where God is calling you to act and do it. Each moment comes but once, and if we miss it, it's gone forever. Take advantage of every opportunity to embody the faith of our ancestors. What's holding us back? What's holding you back? Well, I can't speak for you, and I don't know if this is true 
for you personally. But one thing that commonly holds Christians back is shame. Society has rules and uses shame to enforce them. One rule is to never discuss religion or politics in polite company. Generations of that rule have left us unable to discuss them politely. People assume that if you bring up politics, it's either to reinforce your bond over a shared set of beliefs or to argue strenuously to get them to change their minds. It's really difficult to have a calm, rational discussion about world events that have a political dimension. Too often we lapse into sound bites that are more or less yay team uh, in they're sound bites that we've heard from our favorite political commentators and wind up just talking past each other. In a similar way, people assume that if you're talking about religion, your goal is to browbeat them into changing their minds. Evangelism has become a dirty word tarnished by decades of aggressive proselytizers. Christians with a particular worldview have gone forth with their four spiritual laws to convert sinners into saints. Do you all know about the four spiritual laws? You ever heard, heard that? No? Well, so the, the first one is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, I, I can get on board with that. That's, that's pretty good. Where it goes off the rails is at the second law. Humanity is tainted by sin and is therefore separated from God. As a result, we cannot know God's wonderful plan for our lives. And then it gets worse from there. And basically the message is that we are all sinful, terrible creatures that must repent. We're worthless, but we can be saved if we say the sinner's prayer. That, that four spiritual laws came out in the 60s. And now for more than 50 years, it's been the most vocal evangelistic message. And so if you bring up Christianity, people are on guard. They put up walls and end the discussion so you can't tell them how terrible and worthless and, and sinful they are. So most of us respond by just never bringing it up. We don't want to be rejected because of our beliefs. And so we hide our beliefs. We seed the public conversation to those who preach hate in the name of a loving God. And then we're surprised that nobody wants to come to church. We hide ourselves from the world, and then we're surprised that nobody knows where to find us when they need the God we worship and adore. Paul told Timothy, I am not ashamed, for I know the one in whom I have put my trust, and I am sure that he is able to guard the deposit I have entrusted to him. As I said, Paul had a hard life. He could have put all of his time and energy into his tent-making business and had a much easier time. But in a culture where shame could mean death, he was unashamed to preach the good news of God's inclusive kingdom. He was unashamed to make enemies of both the conservative Jewish synagogue leaders and the Gentile political leaders. He had no fear of making enemies across all social strata. He knew that God's kingdom was greater 
than the limited vision the Jewish rabbis taught about and greater than the powerful Roman Empire. Paul went on to praise Onesiphorus because he often refreshed Paul and was not ashamed of his chain. Paul brought shame upon himself and got himself flogged and imprisoned. And yet he formed relationships by the power of the Holy Spirit that transcended these merely mortal concerns. He was able to find people who understood his mission, who understood that God's kingdom would transform and transcend this broken world. Paul counseled Timothy, too, to rekindle the gift of God that was within him, a spirit not of cowardice, but of power and of love and of self-discipline. He said, do not be ashamed then of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. Paul's challenge to Timothy is also a challenge to us today. Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord. But how shall we testify? Well, I suppose I could find a street corner and harangue passers-by, like some traveling preachers do. But I'm pretty sure that would do more harm than good. I mean, that's what's given evangelism a bad name. Even if my message was more uplifting than the typical repent your terrible sinners kind of message, just my, my method would obscure that message. But what is the fundamental message of the gospel? It's the arrival of God's kingdom, which is the transformation of this world into a place where everyone knows and loves God and loves their neighbors as themselves. So the best way to share the gospel is to share love. Who should we love? Well, let me turn that around. Who shouldn't we love? Who should we reject and revile and hate in God's name? Well, I would be hard-pressed to identify anyone that Jesus said should be kept out of his kingdom. But if I had to name someone, it would be hypocrites and those who ignored the needs of the sick, the poor, and the prisoner. Jesus only ever chastised those who made other people's lives worse instead of better. So let's strive to make the world a better place, one person and one relationship at a time. Let's strive to invite everyone, everyone into God's kingdom. That was Paul's message. He traveled the Near East preaching a message of radical inclusion. He became like a Jew to the Jews and like a Gentile to the Gentiles. He taught that being circumcised or uncircumcised made no difference. He taught that nothing could ever come between us and God. And yet, despite his message of inclusion, or my, more likely because of the message of inclusion, he was rejected. As he approached the end of his life, he feared that his work would end with him. Impact. He looked back on his life and wondered, did it matter? <clears throat> did his work really change anyone's hearts or minds? 2,000 years later, 
we can confidently say, yes, Paul's life mattered. He gave his whole self to God, pursuing his calling as a herald, apostle, and teacher. He risked everything for the sake of that calling, likely dying in prison. He had faith that the calling was worth the risk. He relied on the grace of God, promised from before the ages begin, began, to sustain him in this life and the next. He knew that if he gave his whole self to God, his self-sacrifice would matter. And, you know, we can look at the flags posted around the room on this World Communion Sunday, thanks to uh, Jeff Sanquist, who uh, has access to a lot of uh, flags from his uh, work on campus. We can see in all of the nations represented by these flags, people read Paul's letters. People follow the Lord that we, the God that we believe in because of Paul's writings. Paul's challenge to Timothy is his challenge to us today. Give your whole self to God. Let go of fear and shame and go forth as a herald, proclaiming God's all-inclusive, all-loving kingdom. If we do that, if we turn away from a spirit of cowardice, we can be sure that we will be sustained by God's spirit of power and of love, and that we will be a part of God's kingdom right here, right now, and in the world to come. Amen.